Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. Follow in your Bibles as we read Genesis chapter 25. Then again, Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bare him Zimram, and Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. And Jokshan begat Sheba, and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashuram, and Letchem, and Lumam. And the sons of Midian, Ephah, and Ephor, and Hanak, and Abida, and Aldah. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. But unto the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son, while he yet lived eastward unto the east country. And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, a hundred threescore and fifteen years. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the, in the field of Ephraim, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, which, he, which is before Mamre. The field which Abraham purchased of the sons of Heth, there was Abraham buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt by the well Leheroi. Now these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's handmaid, bare unto Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations, the firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, and Kedar, and Adbeel, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Masa, and Hadar, and Tima, and Jetur, and Nephesh, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names by their towns and by their castles, twelve princes according to their nations. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, a hundred and thirty and seven years. And he gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people. And they dwelt from Havilah unto Shur, that is before Egypt, as thou goest toward Assyria. And he died in the presence of all his brethren. And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac. And Isaac was forty years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red all over at, like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came, it, came his brother out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. 
Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he sware unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Father, I ask today for enablement to bring the message. It's a passage, Lord, that's full of all kinds of truth. Help us to glean from it today. And I pray that you'd help us to understand that you are a prayer-answering God still, and that you're a God who keeps his promises, and that you think us to be important people, people with a design, people with a purpose, and you want us to follow you and not our flesh. So, Lord, teach us these things today, and I pray that your will be done in our midst. If there's someone here who has never trusted Jesus, may today be the day of salvation for them. And for that person who maybe is not living for you as they should, I pray that you might just prompt their heart today to realize that it's most important that we live for Jesus and not for ourselves. Guide us today, Lord, meet our needs, give enablement to bring the message, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The patriarchs of the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were ordinary people chosen by God for extraordinary purposes. They were the patriarchs of the nation Israel. And Israel, through Israel, came much of the, most of the word of God. And also through Israel, most importantly, came the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are good examples of how God, of how God can take flawed people and use them for His glory. They are examples of God's grace in action as He displays His unmerited favor in their lives to accomplish great things and at the same time teach us valuable lessons that we can learn uh, in, to, in our own life. Our text this morning is Genesis chapter 25. And in this passage we learn several truths that will help us to live our life of faith. Like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we are also flawed people. We are like this basketball. A few years ago, in ordering some things for the church, we bought some balls that we could use in games. This ball had a problem. You cannot see it right now. But in fact, I thought the problem still existed because it's been laying in my office for a few years now, thinking I would use it someday as an illustration. But then when, I got, then when I picked it up to use that as illustration, I realized it's round now. It wasn't then. But really, that pictures us. We look all right, don't we? You all look pretty good today. You're dressed up, your Sunday clothes and everything, and the women have their makeup on, and aren't we glad of that? <laughs> and the men, uh, they look a lot better than they did when they got up, and I'm sure you're glad of that. If you saw me when I get up in the morning, it'd be... <laughs> It would be frightening. (laughs) But uh, this basketball illustrates that uh, we are all flawed people. Because on the outward look, this basketball looks all right, but you'll notice that it doesn't have much air in it. When you blow this basketball up, it has air in it like it should, then this basketball is lopsided. You can't bounce it. You couldn't play ball with it. It's lopsided, and it just has an awful shape, and there's no way you can use it to play a meaningful game of ball. 
Well, that's the way we are. We're flawed. We have problems. And uh, only the Lord can take a flawed person and then use them for his glory. Only the Lord can take somebody who has all these imperfections and then make it so that they can accomplish things for his glory. It's a wonderful thing that uh, the Lord can do with flawed people. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are examples of that. Now let's observe some lessons this morning that, from, that we learn about from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis chapter 25. Now there are lessons from their life that we can learn that are not mentioned this morning. But these are lessons from this chapter, Genesis chapter 25. The first one is this. Everyone is dispensable. You might think you're very important. We all might think that we are, uh, you know, that people, our family just couldn't get along without us. They couldn't do without us. We might think we're indispensable, but there has never been such a person as, a, as a, such an, a person that's indispensable. God can do without you. God doesn't have to have you. God's work will go on without you. We are all dispensable. Now, Abraham was a great man. He was greatly blessed of God and greatly used of God. He was greatly blessed because the Bible says uh, the Lord called him from Ur of the Chaldees for a very special purpose to develop this nation, and from this nation all the world was going to be blessed. But also, when he was 100 years old, it had been 25 years since God made these promises to him, and he still didn't have any children. And when he was 100 years old, God rejuvenated his body. Then the Bible, in Hebrews, it says his body was as good as dead. So that means he wasn't able to father children. His wife was 90 years old, and she was no longer so that she could have children. Everything had passed the time of their life for childbearing, but God intervened, and he rejuvenated Abraham and also Sarah so that they could have a child. And after Sarah's death, we read astonishingly in this passage that Abraham remarried. He remarried Keturah. And how old was he when he remarried? Bless this guy. He was 137 years old. And not only did he get married at 137 years old, he fathered six more sons. Now, what about that? God really rejuvenated Abraham, and so God really blessed this man. He also was the father of many nations. The Bible said that he would be. Well, he was the father of the nation of Israel. He was a uh, father of Ishmael, and the Bible says he would be a nation. And then it says in this passage that Ishmael had, Ishmael had 12 sons or 12 princes, as God had, had predicted back in chapter 17, I think it's verse 20. God said there would be 12, and there were. And all of these, it says of, of them, according to their nations. So you've got all these nations. And then he has Keturah's wife, and she has six sons. And we don't know all the nations that came from them, but we know one because one of them's name was Midian, and so there were the Midianites. And so God made many nations come from Abraham. He was an important man. Now, what the Bible mentions here is that he has concubines. Those concubines, I believe, were Hagar and Keturah. And so Hagar is no more in the, their life. Keturah now is after Sarah died, and so he had these concubines. And he lived for 175 years, but then what happened? He died. He died. Isaac and Ishmael got together. They must have settled some of their differences, and they were at the burial. You know, that happens lots of times when parents pass on. Children realize we've been so foolish. 
we've been arguing with each other and we shouldn't have done that and dad or mom's gone now. And they get together at the, at the funeral and they resolve their differences. Well, that happens sometime. must have happened with them. And so uh, Abraham dies. Well, Ishmael then, what's it say about him? Well, he lived to be 137 years old. He also was blessed of God. Chapter 21, verse 18 says, I will make him a great nation. Chapter 21, verse 20 says, God was with the lad, and he grew, and he became an archer. But after God's blessing Ishmael, even God blessed him, though he wasn't the promised son, God blessed him, and still he died. And when God was finished with Abraham and Ishmael on, the, on their life and their life on this earth, God had his purpose fulfilled for them, then God let them go, and they died. The question is to us is, as long as we live, we don't know how long that'll be or when we're going to die, but the question is, are we fulfilling God's desire for our life while we're living? Because you'll never have a chance to do it again. You'll never have a chance to live by faith again. When you get to heaven, it'll be sight. When you get to heaven, you won't be living by faith. You won't be able to obey God. And when there are challenges around you that says, don't obey God, everybody obey God in heaven. But the only opportunity you have to obey God uh, by faith is down here on this earth. So we must take the advantage of it because someday we're going to die. Now, when Abraham died, the Bible says God had a man on the scene, and it was his son who took his place. And that was Isaac. Somebody... Uh, some great preacher, and I forgot who it was, but he said this, God buries his workers and carries on his work. Just because you as a worker for Christ dies doesn't mean God's work is going to stop. God buries his workers but carries on his work. And so we're all dispensable. Now, another lesson we learn from this passage is that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. God promised Abraham to, to uh, the promised son. It took 25 years from 75 years old to 100 years old for it to come to, come to pass and have a son. But God promised it, and it was going to be done because God said it was going to be done. And so God promised him a son, and he had a son. God also promised him that would be the father of many nations. It didn't look that way when he's 100 years old, but true enough, he was, God said it, and that happened. God promised Ishmael that he would be a nation. And uh, he, heard, he learned that from his mother, Hagar, because it, God told Hagar, and she no doubt told her son. And that, but that, that came the time, though, you remember when he was 13 years old, that uh, they left the home of Abraham and Sarah, and uh, they didn't have any, their food, and the water ran out, and they, they were famished. And uh, she thought for sure the boy was going to die. And so she took him over next to a bush and she left him there and she got away so she wouldn't see him die. She thought she was going to die. He couldn't die. Why? Because God had promised. God had promised he would make of that son a, a, a nation. And he hadn't even gotten married yet. So he couldn't die. Why? Because God had promised. And sure enough, we read in this passage years later, he has 12 princes. Twelve sons, and they become nations. God keeps his promises, and we know that's true. Also, Isaac was promised a son. Now, the Bible says that he knew God had, he makes clear that he knew God had chosen him because Isaac was chosen instead of Ishmael, and Isaac knew that. And Isaac knew that the promise to his dad, Abraham, went down to him, and so he had to have children. 
And so he knew that. But you know, God sent Isaac through the same thing that he sent Abraham through. Isaac got married late in life when he was 40 years old. And this passage tells us he didn't have a child until he was 60 years old. Now, our son got a little, uh, not upset, but uh, anxious, I might say, when he found out they were going to have a child. And he said, Dad, I'm 40 years old. Well, now that child is a blessing to them. But uh, uh, Isaac was 40 years old when he got married. He didn't have a child until he was 60 years old. God made him wait 20 more years. But guess what? God had promised to him that he would have all these people come from him because he's got to be the one that carries on the promise to Abraham. And so he knew that God had promised him, and so God keeps his promises. You know, God always keeps his promises. There has never been a promise that God didn't keep. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you can rejoice today because God will keep his promises to you. What's he promised? Well, just some of those things he promised. He promises that we will never be forsaken. We will never lose our salvation. We will never perish. God will give us unto us eternal life and we will never perish. That's a promise of God. And so we can count on that promise. God promises that he will always love us. It's good to know God always loves us. When you feel unloved, when you feel like circumstances are against you, just remember this. The God in heaven who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-able, he's able to do everything. He loves you and you're special to him. God promises that. He promises that he'll never leave us. He promises that he'll never allow us to be tried above that we were able. But will the temptation or the trial provide a way of escape? He promises that he'll work all things together for good to those that love him. He promises that he's preparing a place for us in heaven. He promises that he's going to come and get us someday. He's promised that we are going to be more than conquerors. He promises to meet all of our needs, supply everything that we need. God has promised and God keeps his promises. This passage tells us that. Another thing this passage tells us, we learn from this, is that God answers prayer. God answers prayer. Isaac prayed that Rebekah would have a child. Look at verse 21. You know, if I was 40 years old when I got married, and I had all these promises of God, and I was 60 and still didn't have a child, I'd do some praying too. And he prayed. And he prayed that God would give them a child. Look at verse 21. It says, and Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife. That means he prayed because she was barren and the Lord was entreated of him and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. God answered prayer. You know, the Bible tells us children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. And children are not just something that happens. Children are a gift. That's why I believe that abortion is wrong. And we'll get to that in a minute, but... Uh, because children are a gift of the Lord. And I don't care if the, ch- if the child came through uh, bad circumstances. That, that's not the child's fault, and the child is still a gift from the Lord. And so the child is a gift from the Lord. But the Lord sometimes withholds his gifts, and he says, I want you to pray. And so he withheld his gift for 20 years for Isaac, and then Isaac finally came to the place where he said, Lord, please, God said, I, I'm not sure God said this, but it's like God said, well, I was waiting for you to ask. You know, that's, as we mentioned the other day, that's, that's the sovereignty of God and the, and the responsibility of men. God says he'll do something, but God also says you're supposed to ask. Now, does that mean God's going to do something without you asking? No. 
It means God has determined what's going to happen, but God also determined that you've got to ask. And God says, you have not because you ask not. You say, I don't figure that all out. You don't have to. Just believe God. Just believe God. And so the Lord says that, uh, that Isaac prayed. Also, we find in this passage that Rebekah prayed. When Rebekah finally got, uh, got pregnant, uh, she was, uh, the, chi- the child was forming in the womb, and she noticed something. Oh, it's strange going on. I mean, I've, my wife's had six. Well, in fact, seven. We are first ones in heaven. She miscarried at three months. And so we don't know the sex of the child, but we just know there's a child in heaven. Well, we'll find out someday. But uh, children are a gift. And I can remember Evelyn going through uh, pains, you know, and, and discomfort and, and the child moving around. I've talked to other ladies, and even in church, they'll say, oh, boy, that child was really uh, jumping around this morning. Can you imagine having two? Some, my, some of you might have had twins. I don't know, but two, but not only t- twins in the womb, but these twins were fighting. Now, I don't know, I don't understand all that, but they say that can happen. It did happen here. The Lord says they were struggling. In fact, in the womb, they didn't even like each other. <laughs> in the womb, they were upset. They irritated each other in the womb. Have you ever seen babies fight? I thought, I think I've seen babies fight, but I'm not sure. So I looked it up online, and I got some pictures of babies fighting. And sure enough, there are babies that are fighting. I, I saw this one where the baby wanted this something, and the other baby wanted it, and she grabbed it away from me, got all upset, and, and they're just babies. They, they couldn't hardly sit up. They were babies. They were fighting. Well, the Bible says that, that uh, uh, Rebecca experienced this. In the womb, she felt something happening, something going on. And so she prayed and asked God, and God gave her an answer. And he said, there's two nations in your womb, two different kinds of people in your womb. And so she prayed. Also, God answers prayer in lots of ways. You know, uh, we've all had prayers answered. But in the Bible, it tells us about answered prayer. Uh, Just some of those, Solomon prayed for wisdom, and God gave him wisdom. And uh, there were prayers for victory in battle. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were going up to battle against the Hagarites. And uh, they didn't know what to do. And they entreated the Lord, it says in 1 Chronicles 5, verse 20. They entreated the Lord, and the Lord answered and gave the victory. You remember that great example? I've used it many times of Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 19. Hezekiah was going up against Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. And uh, he was outnumbered. I mean, what are they going to do? And so, and he got this letter from, from him, and it was threatening him and telling him what they were going to do. And Hezekiah takes it up to the Lord, and he spreads it out before the Lord. And he said, Lord, read this. <laughs> read these threats. And the Lord so much as said, don't worry about it, Hezekiah. I got it taken care of. You won't need to fight this. I'm going to do it for you. And the Bible says they... That night, the Lord, the angel of the Lord came, just one angel it took. The angel of the Lord come, came in answer to prayer. The angel of the Lord came and killed 185,000. It says they woke up the next morning, they were all dead corpses. That doesn't mean the dead people woke up. <laughs> the people woke up and saw that there were 185,000 dead. Who killed those people? God did. Uh, did God send an army? God sent one angel, the angel of the Lord. Killed all those people. What? In answer to prayer. The Bible says that 
that kingdom was restored to Manasseh, Second Chronicles chapter 33. Manasseh was a wicked king. He led the children of Israel to sin more than others had. I mean, he was a bad king, and so God disciplined him. And God took his kingdom away from him. And he was humbled. And Manasseh, that wicked king, humbled himself and prayed to God and said, God, please. And God restored the kingdom to Manasseh. An unbelievable account. In answer to prayer, Elijah prayed. James tells us that back in 1 Kings 18, we read the account. It doesn't say Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. He just told the king it won't rain. Well, James tells us the reason he, it wouldn't rain was because Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years, and then he prayed again and it rained. And so God controls the weather, and if you ask the Lord, and if it's God's will, he will do that for you. And Elijah prayed, and God stopped the rain, and he started the rain. And then you remember that contest on the mount when Elijah was there in con- contest against the, the prophets of Baal. And they, they tried their best to call down fire from heaven. They did everything. And then, oh, Elijah, I love that account. Elijah says, all right, it's my turn now. I'm going to talk to my God. And he says, now, you all have tried to burn these dry sacrifices. Let's do it this my way. He says, bring four barrels of water and pour on the, on the sacrifice. So they brought four, four barrels of water and poured it. And the, this was that drought time, so this is precious water. And maybe they got it out of the sea. I don't know. That's probably where they got it. But he says, all right. If, and he looks at it and says, oh, my God's bigger than this. Hey, get four more barrels. And so they dropped four more barrels on it. And then Elijah looks at it again. It's like he's saying, oh, I, 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 God's great. He can do it. And Hey, bring four more barrels. So 12 barrels of water on that sacrifice. It is soaked. Everything's soaked. And Elijah just prays a simple prayer and says, Lord, show them who you are. And God sent down the fire from heaven, and it burned up the sacrifice and burned up all the water and burned up everything. And the Lord gave victory. Why? In answer to prayer, Elijah prayed. Well, God still answers prayer. In the book of New, in the New Testament, we find that uh, Peter was in jail, and uh, there was prayer made for him. And they had a little prayer meeting. They got together and they prayed that God would deliver Peter out of jail. And sure enough, here came Peter walking, knocking on their door because God got him out of jail. They couldn't hardly believe it, but God answers prayer. God still answers prayer. In James chapter five, verse sixteen, it says, "The effectual." fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. A lesson we learn from this chapter. With all these things we read about the generations of and the generations of, we find this truth. God answers prayer. And then there's another truth we find here. And that is in this passage we find out that babies in the womb are people. Babies in the womb are people. The Bible says in verse 22, the babies struggled in the womb. They were fighting in the womb. These babies had personalities because God made them that way. They were just not a blob of flesh. They were a a person. And they had personalities and they were struggling in the womb. The Bible says that God had a design for these children in the womb. He says two nations, two manner of people are in your womb. 
Two nations are there. So God already has it determined. These people have characteristics about them. These are real people. I mean, they can struggle inside the womb even. And in, in the womb, they are two nations. They're beginning of two nations. And God says that babies in the womb are people. The sons were born. Those babies in the womb, the first one was Esau. He came out first. He was red and hairy all over. That's why they called him Esau. You know what Esau means? Harry. Not H-A-R-R-Y, but H-A-I-R. Harry. And so Esau lived with that name because he was hairy. And, and probably he was a guy that had a lot of hair all over his arms and his legs. And, and uh, he had a great big beard and everything. And probably hair coming out from his, uh, his collar. He, he was a hairy man. Nothing wrong with that, but God made him that way. And so he was a hairy man. And then the Bible says that Jacob came out secondly. And he had a hold of Esau's heel. It's like they were in a struggle in the womb and they weren't done fighting yet. And so when Esau comes out, Jacob has a hold of of his heel. And so they named him according to that and they named him Jacob. You know what Jacob means? It means heel catcher. So Harry... And heel catcher are the twins. And so Jacob, uh, is, comes. he's born there. And God designs that the elder is going to serve the younger. God makes the determination before they're ever born that the elder one is going to serve the younger. Normally it's the firstborn with all the rights, but God says, no, this time it's going to be the elder one is going to be under the younger one. God determined that. That leads me to say this from this passage. Babies in the womb are people. And that is because they are, abortion is murder. Abortion is murder. Because when you abort a child, when you decide that you know what's best, and it's not what you want to have this child, but, uh, and you, it's your body, and you can do with it what you want. No, you can't either. You'll answer to God for it. And the Bible says babies are people. And that means that they have a purpose. God is the one who made them, and when he makes them, he gives them certain DNA, and he gives them certain characteristics, and God is the one that designs them for a purpose. God has a purpose for that child. And when you step in and say, I don't want anything to do with this, this child, I don't want this child, you're saying to God, your gift is not what I want, and I don't want your gift. And so it's wrong, and it's sin. And, but I thank the Lord for this that people who commit abortion or have abortions done can be forgiven just like we can be forgiven. <laughs> and you don't have to have, let, let that hang over your head all of your life. You can say, Lord, that was wrong. I want you to forgive me. If you're a Christian, you can pray that, and God will forgive you, and God will forgive. But abortion is murder because pe- babies in the womb are people. And then there's another lesson we learn from this passage. And that is the home is important for the development of the child. The home is important for the development of the child. The parents are responsible for the child's development. And the way a child turns out, a lot depends on how they were raised in the home. God told Rebecca how the children would, would, uh, what their future was going to be. God told Rebecca that the elder would serve the younger Rebecca no doubt, no doubt told Isaac they, all, they knew all about this. They knew that this was God's plan. They should have helped them trust God. They should have explained it to the boys and said, Now, boys, 
This is God's plan. The best way for you to live your life is to go along with God and not to buck God, not to fight God. And uh, Esau, you're the firstborn, but God says you're to serve, the, uh, the, you're going to be second. It's not what we determine, it's what God determines. And you need to know this, if you will follow God, he will bless you. They should have done that. Maybe they started out that way. But after a while, the children began to cause division. You know, children sometimes do that because they're sinners. And children will sometimes pit the mom against the dad or the dad against the mom. They'll take sides, and they're, they're good manipulators to do that. Parents who are already grown up and know better should be able to intervene and say, no, we don't do this. I love mom, and she loves me, and you're not going to pit us against each other. But children will do that. Well, that's what happened in this home. Isaac then began to favor Esau. He began to say, oh, Esau is my favorite. I think it's dangerous for you to say one of your children are your favorite. They should all be equally loved by God. They all have different characteristics, but uh, they're all special. And so the, Isaac said, uh, Esau is my favorite. Now, there's, it says something about Isaac's char- character because it tells us why he was his favorite. And he says, because he ate of his venison. Now, that's bad, you know, that your favorite one is the the one who gives you something to satisfy your flesh. Just because you like venison, you're going to favor him over the the other boy. And so Isaac uh, favored Esau because he liked his venison. Well, Rebekah began to favor Isaac. She was more refined probably than Isaac was. And she maybe came from a home that uh, they didn't live in tents. Maybe they lived in, in dwellings. And, and she was real, more refined probably than Isaac was. And uh, she, she probably had more of a spiritual bent to her than Isaac did, even though Isaac, I think, is going to be, be commended because you remember he voluntarily uh, was willing to lay down his life when his dad was going to kill him. He felt that was God's will. And yet... Through the years, things began to change some. It seems like uh, Rebecca was uh, more in tune to spiritual things. Jacob probably stayed home. It said he dwelled in a tent, so he probably helped with the cattle and all of that. And uh, he was a, a more of a homebody and he helped around the, around the home. And the, these problems that were brewing in the home uh, should have, should have alerted the parents so that they thought, no, we've got to do something about this. But they didn't. They went their separate ways. Isaac giving in to Esau, Rebekah giving in to Jacob, and uh, a problem was about to really come to to a head, and they needed to stop it, but they didn't. But then we learn another lesson from this passage, and that is the final lesson we'd like to look at is this. Living to satisfy the flesh will rob you of great blessings. Now, the story is that of Isaac and Jacob as they're grown. And the Bible says, we'll sort of set the stage here, it talks about a birthright. The birthright normally would go to Esau. It would not go to Jacob because Esau was born first. But God had reversed that. He said it's not going to be that way. But normally the birthright meant a double portion of the inheritance. Now, I believe I understand this correctly. That would mean if there were two, two boys, it would be divided into three parts, and one would get two parts, and the other would get one. But anyway, it's a double portion. And so the birthright would be a double portion. 
Also, the birthright meant that you would rule over the family. You would rule, rule over the family. You, you were the, the guy that everybody went to. If there were differences, then, then you're the one to try to help settle those differences. You're sort of the head of the, of the home or the family. Also, the birthright meant that you were responsible to provide for the family. If someone was uh, uh, in need, then it was your, your responsibility to see that that need was met. Maybe every, get everybody together or something. It, you just had that responsibility. But also you were responsible for the spiritual well-being of the family. And it was your responsibility to take care of that and make sure the family was going the right way. Maybe lead in worship. In fact, we find that in, in uh, what God said about Abraham in, Abraham, in, uh, in Genesis 18. He says, I know him, verse 19, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. In other words, it was their responsibility to be the spiritual head of that household. Now, Jacob seemed to like that idea. He seemed to be more mature and thought, you know, I think I could do that, and God wants me to do that. My mom has told me that that's God's design for me, and I, I really want to do that. I think I can do that, and I want to lead spiritually. Esau thought, well, that part of it, Jacob, I don't want anything to do with. I, you know, I'm a man of the field, and I, I'm, I'm a worldly man. You might, he wouldn't say that, but he says, I'm a man of the field, and I'd like to hunt and all those things. And I'm not interested in leading people in worship and all of that. He wasn't interested in that. Esau was a cunning hunter, the Bible says. That means he was very skilled at hunting. There are only two hunters mentioned in the Bible and they're not spoken very well of, even though I like to hunt. It's been a few years since I did it, but I used to hunt every year, deer hunt with my boys. But a hunter was mentioned by Nimrod and also Esau. And neither one of them were very good people. But he was a cunning hunter. And he was a man of the field. That according to Hebrews 12, verses 16 and 17, there were two other thing characteristics that he had. He was a fornicator and he was profane. Profane meant he, he was disrespectful, and a fornicator meant he was immoral. So this guy was a man's man, you might say, as some people would think. doesn't impress me. But he, he was a man of the field. I mean, he'd go out and hunt, and he'd get all the, the game and bring it in and, and all of that. While Jacob stayed home, helped take care of the flocks and do the chores around home, this guy was out satisfying his own desire that he wanted to be a hunter, and that's all he wanted to be. And so he was a man of the field. Jacob was a plain man. The Bible uses the word plain in our King James Version there. It's really not a good translation probably because the same word is used in Job to to, uh, tell about Job that he was a perfect man. Same word, same Hebrew word. Job was a perfect man, and here it says uh, Jacob was a plain man. Probably best interpreted, Jacob was a mature man. Jacob was a devout man. Jacob was a, was a pious man. He was, he, he was a man who loved the Lord. Jacob was a good guy. Not that he was just plain and not, you know, not much good. And sometimes we have that picture, you know, Esau's the one that we admire. Jacob, he was the one we don't admire. Uh, that's not true. Esau came from hunting one day. He'd been hunting all day. And he came in, his brother was cooking a, a, a pot of lentil soup. If you've ever eaten lentils, I like lentils. I think they're good. We don't eat them very often, but they are good. 
and uh, he was cooking a pot of lentil soup. And Esau said, I am so hungry, I am faint. I've got to have something to eat. Well, Jacob got a little ahead of the Lord. You know, he should have waited on God. But he said, uh, oh, okay, Esau, uh, why don't you sell me your birthright and I'll give you something to eat. And Esau said, um, that, that birthright, that don't do me no good in, anyway. I'm going to die someday, and right now I feel like I'm going to die. I'm so hungry. I've got to have something to eat to satisfy my flesh. And so Jacob said, all right, Esau, if you will give me your birthright, I will give you a bowl of soup. Now, we know it was a bowl of soup because Hebrews tells us that, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. So he sold his birthright for just a bowl of soup. That's why I entitled the message, uh, High Price for Supper. (laughs) I mean, he paid a big price for supper that day. And so he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Esau claimed that he was almost to die. He really wasn't. I mean, he'd gone out hunting that morning, and he'd hunted all day. He was tired, no doubt, but he wasn't going to die. He came from a prosperous family. He could have probably gone a, lot, a few days without something to eat because he'd eaten a lot before. He wasn't going to die, but he put his flesh ahead of everything else, and he says, I'll give up the birthright you can have uh, if you'll just give me the soup. Well, in, do, in doing that, the Bible says Esau despised his birthright. He despised his birthright. He regarded it as with contempt. He regarded it with disgust. It's not anything I want. He did not consider it of any value to him to be the head of the home and to be responsible for the spiritual well-being. of all. He wanted the money, but he didn't want all this stuff. And he says, what's that to me? I'd rather have a bowl of soup. You see, Esau lived for the satisfaction of his flesh. Thus, he always fed his flesh, and he never fed his soul. You could say of Esau that he was godless. He lived for himself. He lived for things. He lived for satisfaction, and he didn't live for the Lord. And so he was godless. He was a fornicator because he always wanted to satisfy his flesh. A situation of immorality arose in his life, and he would commit the fornication. You see, when a situation for immorality rises in a person's life, it doesn't make them a fornicator. They were a fornicator in their heart before the situation ever arose. The situation just revealed what kind of person they were. And he was a man of the flesh. He would satisfy his flesh at all costs, even giving up his birthright so you can expect him to do everything else that's wrong as well. And so you you forfeit God's blessings when you just live for the flesh. I wrote down some of these things that I was thinking about when I looked at this, talked about when I was studying for this message. Gluttony. Gluttons are are flesh satisfiers. Thieves are flesh satisfiers. Lazy people are flesh satisfiers. Drunks are flesh satisfiers. Liars who don't want to deal with the truth, they'll put it off, you know, it's because they're flesh satisfiers. When you don't go to church, even though you're not sick, you just, oh, I'm tired. I had a rough day yesterday. I just won't go. You're a flesh satisfier. Church tramps are flesh satisfiers. You know, they trump, they just 
go from one church to the other. Oh, this one pleased me for a while, and this one pleased me for a while, and this pleased me for a while. And they're kind of people come in and say, bless me if you can. <laughs> well, you don't want to be that. You want to be somebody who wants to serve the Lord. And sometimes it takes, it's tough, you know, just to buckle down and serve the Lord. And so adulterers are flesh satisfiers. Worshiping the flesh instead of worshiping God. That's why Colossians 3 verse 5 says that covetousness is idolatry. Yes, if we live for satisfying the flesh, we're going to miss out on the blessings that God wants us to have. Now, Jacob sinned, I'm sure, because he didn't wait on God. He knew he was going to be, get this, but he didn't wait on God. He got ahead of himself, and uh, so he sinned as well. But the lessons we've learned this morning from this passage is this. Everyone is dispensable. God keeps his promises. God answers prayer. The home is an important place for the development of the child. Babies in the womb are people. And then finally, living to satisfy the flesh will rob you of God's blessings in your life. Today is Palm Sunday. This day commemorates the day that Jesus rode into into Jerusalem on a donkey. When he rode into Jerusalem, he knew what was going to happen. He had put this off until the right time because he knew that once he rode into Jerusalem, this was the last trip. He knew that it would initiate the week that would finally uh, culminate in his death on the cross of Calvary. He knew that. When Jesus got on that donkey, he knew he was fulfilling the scripture of, of Zechariah. He knew that. He knew what was coming. He knew that he was going to die. He knew the means by which he died. He he was going to die. He'd already told his disciples that. He knew that he was going to die by crucifixion. He knew all the things that were involved. He knew all of that. But what did he do? He humbled himself. He He didn't try to please himself. He came to die for us and to do the Father's will. And he went all the way. Right at the end of the week, he came to the Garden of Gethsemane. And you remember the thought of Calvary was so fresh on his mind and and he could just imagine what it would be to be separated from the Father and to have all the sin of the world put on him. And he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he said this, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He he, He surrendered himself. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And that's the way we should be. Since Jesus did all that for us, we shouldn't be like Esau. We should say, Lord, I want to do what pleases you, not what pleases my flesh. I want to obey you, not my flesh. I want to worship you. I don't want to worship my flesh. I want to be faithful to you because you were faithful to me. It's not too much for the Lord to ask that we live for him who died for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for helping us to see the truths in this passage. And I pray that we might understand, Lord, that you gave so much for us and it's not too much for you to ask us to give our lives to you. For every Christian here, Lord, today I pray that we would anew in our hearts, just say, Lord, I want to obey you. I want, I want to not live for the flesh. I want to live for you. I know there are times, Lord, it'll be tough to make those decisions.
We might feel like Esau did, that, oh, I'm about to die. But he really wasn't. And, and he made a decision just to satisfy his own flesh, threw away the blessings of God just because he wanted something to eat. Lord, I pray that we might not throw away your blessings in our life because we want the flesh to be satisfied. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name.